You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. With that, let's pray and let's get into God's Word. God, we are desperate, needy, weak creatures. And we can be very, very sinful. In fact, would we in our sanest moments, we can admit we're good at it. But Lord, you are greater and stronger and more committed to the formation of us into beings that when we see each other in heaven, one of of the Christian authors said that we would be mightily tempted to possibly worship who we will see in our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how committed to the beauty of our formation you are. And God, I just pray this morning that you will use me to be able to carefully and tenderly unlock the word of God. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I always heard those stories about being in the African-American church. And when you get going, the people in the back would say, help him, Jesus. And I'm like, yes, that would be good. Help him, Jesus. Well, I'll tell you this. Talk about ministry. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I went to seminary, which is graduate school for people who are training to go into full-time ministry. Um, but I wanted you to, I want you to know I wasn't there because I wanted to be a pastor. That was the last thing I wanted to be. I wanted to learn enough about the Bible to be able to accurately and then creatively describe the biblical worldview in my original music, because my goal was I wanted to be a Christian who is committed to rock music, a rock music career in the secular world. That I know it's a long, interesting story. You go to seminary to do that. But anyway, that was my thinking. But because that was my thinking, I didn't want to be a pastor. I always sat in the back of the theology classes because I knew that I hardly knew anything. And the last thing I wanted was one of the professors to call on me, Mr. Lewis, you know, to call on me and to reveal to everybody in the class how much I really didn't know. So I always sat in the back row. But there were these dudes who always sat in the front row And they had these new things in the early 90s called laptops, like these giant chunky machines that they'd flip open on their their, their desk. And they'd sit in the front row, and they were my same age, but unlike me, they oozed all this confidence in what they knew about God and what they knew about theology and what they knew about the Bible. And this is funny. They would always start their questions, which were always actually more like sermons, mini sermons, to the professor So think about that. Questions that always ended up being sermons to the theology prof. And they always ended, they always started the question by saying, am I not right when I say, (laughs) just think about that sentence. Am I not right when I say, as in Mr. Professor, I am totally right in what I'm going to say here. And these young theology punks, they acted like they were God's gift to the future of the church. And I would just sit there in the back going, I'm not having any part of that. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I just thought these guys were irritating and completely immature jerks. But when God did redirect my life and said, no, a career in rock music is not what I have for you, um, and directed me into full-time ministry, I discovered (laughs) I could be just as immature and irritating as the punks in the class. And I have to admit that I had this mindset. And it's a mindset that went said, well, I finally said yes to God. I said yes to God. So that means that, yes, clap for me for that. But 
I said yes to God, that means now people should follow me. I said yes to God, that means people should follow me. And I said yes to God, and that means things should happen really, really quickly now because I've said yes to God because everybody should know. I just said yes to God, so you've got to follow me. And if I made a chart to describe how I thought God was supposed to work in and through my life, this was what the chart would have looked like. This is how the chart's supposed to work. The chart is you're living your life and there's this inflection point and you have an encounter with God and then it's sudden steep ascent with a short amount of time. That's how the chart was supposed to be. It describes my belief. I live my life and every time I say yes to God, whether I'm saying yes to God for salvation, I'm saying yes to God for some new response of obedience in my life, some new mission, it's always the insertion point for this steep ascent into maturity, into greatness, into impact, pick the word, whatever it is. And all of that because, hey, I said yes to God. Is there anybody out here today who maybe has found yourself ever thinking something like that? Following some experience with God, isn't there often this expectation that there's going to be pretty immediate impact? That there's going to be immediate impact in us. After some encounter with God, we think that if we can apply a great amount of our personal force of will and then a short impacted amount of time, then voila, we achieve maturity. Don't we kind of think that? Don't we think that about impact, not just in us, but also impact through us? This is a big one in people who've said, I want to serve you in some way, God. After our encounter with God, we also think that if we apply all of the time and the talent and the treasure that God has given us, along with, hey, I've got a good network of other people who love Jesus with all the time and talent and treasure that they have, and we apply all of that over a short, impacted amount of time, we should be able to make a dent in the world's problems at a steep ascent. Or there's the thought that when we look at other people's lives, right, impact in other people's lives, people tell us, you know, I went to camp or I went to a retreat and I had this amazing encounter with the Spirit of God. And we look at after their encounter with God and then we think (laughs) that the immature people around us should be able to apply their own great amount of willpower and add a short amount of time and they should become a whole lot less irritating and a whole lot more mature very, very quickly. This is what we think. So what I'm trying to get at is, is when God is a part of the equation, it can be really easy to expect that I should grow up quickly, right? That people should change quickly, right? That the mission that I believe that God has given me, the dream that God has given me for what he wants me to do with my life, I should achieve some kind of an impact by now, right? So today, we're going to explore these things as we continue this study as I follow Christ. The Apostle Paul once wrote in the New Testament, he says, follow me as I follow Christ, as I follow Christ. And so what we're doing is we're studying his life as is described in the book of Acts. Because what we want to see is through a real living person who's in this intimate relationship with the living risen Jesus Christ. We want to see how his living relationship with really broken people, broken people like me, broken people like you, broken people like Paul can transform them and change the whole trajectory of their lives. So here's what we're going to read this morning. After Paul meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, which is what we studied last Sunday on Easter Sunday, here's what happens next in Acts. We read, 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the holy, precious word of God. Now, what we read in here is that the newly converted Saul, <laughs> immediately, who was once immediately ready to um, trying to throw a knockout punch at Jesus. Remember, that's what he was doing on the road to Damascus. I'm going to go to Damascus and I'm going to throw a knockout punch at Jesus. He immediately pivots to wanting to be the person who throws a knockout punch for Jesus. This is what happens in his life. And once he wakes up to the reality of the risen Jesus, Saul goes from fanatical, violent enemy of Jesus and anyone who loves Jesus to a fanatical, fanatical defense attorney for Jesus and all who hated him in the synagogues. And the whole text describes for us these immediate attempts from Saul, who's going to become Paul, these immediate attempts at impact. I'm going to make some impact. And we read it, verse 19 through 25. It tells us that while he was still in Damascus. So remember, he's fresh off of running headlong into Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's still in Damascus. He assumes he is fully ready to convince all of his fellow Jews that Jesus really was God and Messiah. And here's the thing. Saul was not wrong in that he knew a lot, but he had not yet been formed a lot. So he felt he was ready and he wanted to make an impact for Jesus. And so he started preaching Jesus in the synagogues. And as he's preaching, his listeners were wondering, wait a minute, isn't this guy who's saying that Jesus is God and Messiah, isn't he the same guy that we heard about who was wreaking havoc on people in Jerusalem who were saying the same thing, that he was God and Messiah? And so he, they're listening to him and Paul doesn't make any sense to his listeners but it says the passage, he grew more in power, which I think that means is this, is that the more he spoke, the more he understood, the more he understood, the more he could powerfully run circles around people and dynamically prove through the data 
through the facts that Jesus was in fact God and Messiah. And this made his listeners go from being puzzled about him to being pissed at him. To the point that they conspired to kill him so that his other fellow believers are like, we got to get this guy out of, out of here. And they sneak him out in the middle of the night, talk about shameful in a basket over a wall. Get out of here. Now, you and I would think maybe, maybe Saul would learn something by this dangerous encounter, you know? Maybe he kind of learned to kind of slow it down a little bit, right? But then we read verses 26 through 30, and it tells us that when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's still seeking immediate impact. He tries to join the disciples in Jerusalem, but they, because they weren't dumb, didn't really believe his story. They didn't believe he was a disciple. And it took, as we read in the passage, we see Barnabas do this a couple times in Acts. It took the honored, trusted fellow believer Barnabas to vouch for his story, for his faith to the brothers in Jerusalem. And then the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem said, okay, we'll believe that he's a follower of Jesus, actually. And once the people of the Jerusalem church opened up to him, Saul hits the gas again. Boldly debating, it says in the text, with Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem about Jesus as God and Messiah. Now, let's just pause what the text in Acts just told us, and let's have a backstory moment together to make sense of what's happening there. Acts chapter 7, if you flip back a couple chapters, it tells us that an early follower of Jesus, a guy named Stephen, had a ministry to Hellenistic Jews. What are they? They are Jewish people by blood, but they've grown up in the Hellenistic Greek culture and empire. They speak Greek. They're Greek-enculturated people. They even have names like Stephen, which are Greek. And so Stephen had this ministry to these Greeks. And some of these people, they became Greek Jews. They became followers of Jesus. You read about it in Acts chapter 7. And others became enemies of Jesus, an enemy of Stephen. And those enemies got so angry at Stephen's work in Jerusalem, this gets violent, they stone him to death. I mean, imagine lathering up a sweat to make sure a fellow human being is bludgeoned to death by stones. They stone him to death with old Saul holding their cloaks so they don't get dirty and approving and cheering them on while Stephen is the very first Christian to lose his life for the sake of his love for Jesus. And then Acts chapter 8 goes on and tells us this. It says that after Stephen's stoning and death, there's this massive outpouring of persecution in Jerusalem where a lot of the believers leave. They flee Jerusalem. Okay, backstory moment over. This brings us back to this moment. This means that the new convert Saul is stepping into Stephen's old ministry. Maybe a little guilt involved? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. To fill in the gap that's left by Stephen's death and by the believers who had fled the persecution in Jerusalem. And so Saul, he's debating, and he's, his act of debating leads again to people wanting to kill him. And the church brothers realizing, this guy's radioactive here. And that he's radioactive, and we do not need another Acts chapter 8 wave of persecution in Jerusalem They ship Saul off to his hometown in Tarsus. Now, what happens next? Well, here's what it says for the church. The church, it says in verse 31, and I'll put it up on the screen. It says this. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Now, I don't know if I'm right, but ever since I was a kid, I've always read this part of the passage and I've chuckled because I think what the church was thinking was, finally, we got rid of that irritating, immature guy. I think that's what they were thinking. But for Paul's life and mission, what happens next? Well, here's what happens next. Paul completely disappears from the book of Acts until late in Acts chapter 11. And if you follow what he does in his writings, we're talking, he disappears for probably between 9 to 13 years. He disappears. And in that time, we know from his writings in Galatians, his letter to the church at Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, he spent time in the back hot deserts of Arabia. You know, where, you know where Arabia is? Arabia is the place where Moses met God on Mount Sinai. It's the place where Elijah met God in the stillness of the quiet of the cave. I think probably Saul went to, to, into Arabia in solitude for many, many years to go, is this really real? We also read in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27, and I won't go through it, but we read that he went through it. And by it, I mean he had been excommunicated from synagogues five times. And when you get excommunicated, you also have physical punishment, 39 lashes on your back, inflicting scar tissue on your body. He was beaten by rods from Roman magistrates for legal infractions that the Romans didn't like. He probably was abandoned by a wife because we know historically all Pharisees, of which Paul was a Pharisee, have, were married We don't read about a wife in the New Testament, probably abandoned. He tried to start churches that failed. Early church fathers, first and second century, who knew people who knew Paul, say that he was a man who was physically broken from successive scar tissue on his back from the whippings and the beatings. More than likely, he was bent over and frail and looked a lot more like Quasimodo than a normal human being. Socially isolated, cut off from family. So for about a decade, for nine to 13 years, Saul went into Jesus's waiting room, which we all do. He went into Jesus's waiting room to become Paul. Here's the point I want to make from what we see in Paul's life is that Jesus, the risen one, forms us through a whole lot of touch, time, and trouble. I see faces who go, I know what you're talking about. Immediate impact is not the thing that Jesus most often does. It's not immediate in the formation of us. It's not immediate in the formation of the world around us through the reformed us. It's just not immediate. Formation in the hands of the risen Jesus, it takes whole heaping amounts of touch. And by touch, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... We are transformed by being in a relationship with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This radically safe space of grace where we can bring all of who we are, everything about us, because God has poured out something we could never have earned for ourselves. We can bring all of who we are all of the time in any condition, and we can work out our temptations, our pain, our rage, our frustration, our questions, our doubts, our joy, our sense of adventure, our joy and delight, and we can bring it all before God. And it is that intimate connection that 
changes us in the presence of a holy God, where we bring all of ourselves to him. He uses heaping amounts of touch in our life. And by time, I mean transformation just takes time. Yeah, God definitely has the capacity to part a Red Sea. I believe that from my reading of the Bible, that he can go snap and part a Red Sea. And by the way, I know I do. We usually want this to be God's time frame most of the time. But more often, the powerful work of God is like the power of a glacier. Glaciers powerfully carve out valleys and crevasses from giant granite mountains. That's how powerful a glacier is. And it does it at about the pace of a typical glacier of about nine inches a day. The naked eye can't see it. So it is with God's work in us and through us. It takes time. And when I say by heaping amounts of trouble, by trouble, I mean trouble. Because just because we've encountered God and we said, I said yes to God. He finally got me to say yes. Just because that happens, that doesn't mean we suddenly cease to experience the human condition. And I think a lot of evangelical Christians kind of think that. It's like, I said yes. Now I cease to get to experience the human condition. No, that's not what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus even said it to us straight. If you actually will read the Bible, and the Bible says... In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I'm the one who's overcome the world. So God uses the troubles in our lives that are our fault. And the troubles in our lives that are not our fault. To take the conversation of our lives deeper and deeper and deeper to transform us. Look, if it took Paul, Saul, somewhere between 9 to 13 years, think about that on the clock. If it took him somewhere between 9 to 13 years to just start to become Paul the Apostle as we know him, then we everyday believers can expect the same kind of course for our lives. Here's my appeal. I have been just as immature and irritating as Saul was in his first encounters with Jesus after his first encounters. But in recent years, I've had this experience with people who've known me through the years. They've experienced me, some of my preaching and me in ministry and things like that. And here's what, just in recent times, people have said this to me. And it's been different, but here's the, the common thread. Andy, I just feel like God has really deepened you through the losses you've suffered. Your brother Paul on Christmas Eve, your brother-in-law Pete the week before Christmas, your father this last Christmas, and the pandemic, and trying to lead the church through all that. I feel like God's deepened you through what you've been through, and now you just have more something, and they fumble for the word. Sometimes it's power, authenticity, or whatever it is. It's just this common thread people have shared with me. (laughs) And honestly, at first, my flesh wonders, So are you saying I've been very boring to hear until this moment? Is that what we're talking about? Because you know how the flesh is? The flesh immediately kicks in and says, wait a minute. But that is not what they're telling me. And by the way, that is not what your friends are telling you when they give you the profound gift of noticing they're seeing God's work in your life. 
That's not what they're telling me. What they're telling me is that they can see and hear that I'm in this place of a deeper surrenderedness that's constantly being demanded of of me in my life to being surrendered to the touch and the times and the troubles that I have been given by Jesus and I have been given by life, which have dismantled and are continuing to dismantle the irritating and the immature Andy. And they can feel the gravity of the change. And so what I've had to realize in God's work in and through and for me and despite me is that it's not a graph like this old graph. That is not the graph for the Christian life. Throw that out in your mind because here is the graph for the Christian life. (laughs) This is the graph of the walk with Jesus. It is surrendering to this hairball. Surrendering to this epic, confusing, twisty, turny, upside-down adventure of life with the risen Christ that takes us home. So Jesus is forming you and I through these heaping amounts of touch, time, and trouble. And the appeal to us is surrender to Jesus' formation process. And we are not, we don't like to do this as evangelical Christians. I don't know. No, we just like to have our programs that Jesus signs off on for us. Don't fight the process. Don't try to control the process that you don't control. Don't try to get ahead of it. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to get a hot air balloon over it. Surrender to the process of what Jesus wants to render from his alchemy of grace in your life. Now, I want to say this. If you're here this morning and you have not yet said yes to belief in Jesus Christ, Jesus brought you here for a reason, to turn your life around, spin you upside down, and set you right. And if that is you this morning, this is your opportunity to right here and right now to Jesus and say, Jesus, I admit that I am this thing called a sinner. I am good at treating my mood as the most important thing in my life. And I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, who totally changed this guy's Saul's life. And I'm committing to follow you. The scriptures say today could be the day of salvation for you. And I pray it can be. But also, if you do already believe, I ask you to surrender more fully, more fully to the touch of Jesus. Jesus brings all of himself to you. There's a reason why we have this cross up here on the wall. It's a reminder. He brought all of himself to us. He brings all of himself to you. Are you bringing all of yourself to him at all times and in all conditions? Which includes those times when you go, I don't want to talk to you. Because when you say to Jesus, I don't want to talk to you, you're actually having a conversation. To tell him, I'm, I, I don't, I, I'm afraid of what you're going to tell me. It includes everything. He brings all of himself to you. Are you bringing all of yourself to him? And if not, why not? Surrender more fully to the time Jesus takes. Jesus is not in a hurry to form you. Because you can grow a squash in four months. But it takes hundreds of years to grow a beautiful sequoia tree. Can you go as slow as Jesus? And if not, why not? And can you surrender to the troubles that Jesus uses? Jesus doesn't make trouble in your life. Never confuse life with Jesus. They are not the same thing. He doesn't make trouble, but he does enter the troubles with us to comfort us and to form us. 
Can you accept all the troubles that come your way as Jesus' means of forming you and shaping you? And if not, why not? Will you surrender to the formation process is the question. Well, I'm going to invite our beautiful guest worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in some more music. But as they do, I want to just sort of finish by saying this. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the book of Revelation is beautiful in its grandeur. It opens up for us the beauty of the end of human history. And we see these elders in the throne room of God, and we are described these beautiful living creatures, the elders and these living creatures worshiping around God. And in Revelation chapter 5, they, it says they sing a new song. And I don't know what the tune is. We'll get to hear it someday. But we're told some of the lyrics. And these are the lyrics to this new song in Revelation 5. Some of them. In Revelation 5.10, it says, You have made them, them being God's people, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's the end game of the risen Jesus in our lives. Right now, in our lives, right now, here in Santa Cruz, broken and busted as this city is, and broken and busted as our families are, and as our lives are, and other people around us that we know they are, Jesus' end game in our life is to transform us into beings who are going to get there in heaven, and we're going to sing this song with them, and we will be able to say, he has actually made us, me and us, a people who can serve in a kingdom and to be priests. Kings who can rule well. Priests who can represent God in the spiritual realities of the cosmos. That's what he's doing. The end game of what he wants to do in us and to use us to help others to come into that picture. Our world needed Saul to encounter Jesus. who Jesus was the one who placed Saul in his formation mold of touch and time and trouble so that Saul would grow out of this immature, irritating guy into the loving, gracious, brilliant, beautiful Paul the Apostle, who, by the way, 2,000 years ago, that was the pivotal moment that sent down the shockwaves through history that led to us knowing about Jesus because of what God did in Paul's life. And I want you to know the world, at least the world around you, needs the same from you and from me. And I want to say something to you. Some of you, you didn't, you didn't fully know this. If you can remember, about, almost about a year ago at this time, the world was really starting to creak open a little bit more post-pandemic. But you all know, we were all in this thick state of languish. We may have kind of gotten out of our PJs, but not in our souls had we gotten out of our PJs yet. And there was this thick state of languish. And we knew at Faith Community Church, we couldn't hit the gas on anything. It was just a season to try to recoup and repair. It was a season to prepare this church for the next season of our vital mission. I'm sensing from the spirit, the language is kind of dissipated. I'm sensing that it's time for us to be in to pivot towards the next season of planting more seeds. And if that's the case, I want you to consider what your part might be in the next season of this church's vital mission as we're studying the life of Paul. This is just how this whole thing works. Jesus forms his people through huge amounts of touch and time and trouble. Please, let's be people who more fully surrender to that process. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, beautiful Son, Holy Three, we are super grateful and thankful 
that you have made a way where there wasn't a way, that you've cut through all of our religious sensibilities that go, oh, I'm I'm pretty good. Probably this made a lot of sense for God to bring me into his family. You cut through all of that and say, we are so bad, defiled and weak, pitiful creatures that it took something drastic, but we are so loved by your infinite grace that you are glad to do what you did. And so, God, we want to enter into worship just like the beautiful living creatures are in heaven and the elders are around your throne. We want to be your people in this broken place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.